Amen, amen. It's good worship. Thanks, guys. That song Chris said, I don't think we've done for like almost six years. It was an original Tim Settle song um, who helped start the church years ago and now has a really dynamic church going on out in Olathe. Um, so uh, thanks, Tim Settle, if, if you're watching. You're not, though, are you? Because you're having church right now. So, uh, nonetheless, um, grateful for that kind of music. Oh, why am I putting this on? Um, and what I meant to do was go over here and get these Father's Day's cards that I found yesterday when I was cleaning out some storage stuff and um, putting some things away. And so I got this card. Mm-hmm. From all your little monkeys. And so, and here's Hudson put his chop print on here, which I'm sure he had assistance. And Mia put hers on there. And then some kind of weird scrawl on here. You love. And then my son Hudson cut out a picture of a little SUV out of something and taped it on here. <laughs> Not quite sure what that meant. And this was cute and this is good. But then the other one I found was a little disturbing. Because here it is. Bad. Father's Day card from the children. Bad. I, I must have been traumatized because I didn't even open it. You know, so today we're going to open this. Might meet ther uh, therapy after I open this. So I don't know what it's going to say. But uh, anyway, so I hope your Father's Days are as cute and fun as ours always were. Um, so it's kind of good stuff on Father's Day. Um, so, uh, by the way, and so just another piece of um, sort of public service announcement type thing. Uh, if you get your phone out, like you're going to check in, and you go to the app, right? Whoop, I just checked in. So uh, you go to your app. And so Surrender Together Love is in here. It's like you're, you're thinking like these people keep mentioning the surrender together love thing, this STL and these spiritual habits and so forth. What are you talking about? Like, well, let me show you. So you go here and then, um, great, now I'm going to skits out here. And then you go to the toolkit. Okay. So you're at the homepage and you go to the toolkit down here and there's a blue one at the top and it says guidebook. And so tap the blue one and down here it'll say spiritual habits, and that's uh, surrender together love. They're all on here, okay? And the one we're talking about today is under surrender together in love is love, and it's the very last one, and it's on reconciliation. And what we meant by reconciliation isn't just the ministry of reconciliation, like as a, as a theological paradigm from Paul and so forth, which is, of course, there, but particularly it gets applied to race reconciliation, Okay? So um, that's the one we're talking about today. So let's start then with Scripture on this. So listen to this account from the book of Acts from the very first church and what that very first church looked like, okay? Here in Acts chapter 2, this is remarkable stuff. It still amazes me even today. So Acts chapter 2 in the New Testament. Now, when they heard this, Okay, these are the people listening to Peter preach. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and to the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far away, everyone whom the Lord has, our God has called him. By the way, just as a 
a, as a uh, sort of a exegetical moment here. So notice that the baptism and the forgiveness of sins is just not this sort of uh, generic sort of forgiveness of sins the way we think about it today. Notice the next sentence is about the promise to your children. Okay? So if you're being astute here at the moment, you think like, so wait, are the children's sins being forgiven by the parents and so forth? Like, no, 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 no. This is about generational healing. This is about a reconciliation moment in and of itself for the Jewish people of saying like, you're being restored back to the people of Israel. So let's not lose that point there and kind of turn it into some sort of um, genericized version. The history on this is important. Okay. Verse 40 then, and he testified with many other arguments, this is Peter, and exhorted them saying, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Okay. So the ones who had wandered away. And so those who welcomed his message were baptized. And that day about 3,000 persons were added. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayers. All came upon everyone because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. Check these off, you guys. They had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as they had need. Day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple... They broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Okay, so notice that it wasn't just happy feelings. There was actual stuff happening. They were redistributing. There was the economic disparity was being uh, equilibrated, you know, and brought together. People were sharing. So there was definitely some, that, you know how much energy that would take? How much mental uh, work has to be done? It has to come from God to think like, I'm going to sell my stuff and give it to this person. Like, whoa, okay. All right, so this is how the very first followers of Jesus behaved after the resurrection of Jesus. Very, very first. This is within like 50 days of Jesus raising. This is the gold standard of the church even for today. And here's the Apostle Paul's teaching then about what the church should look like from his letter to the church in Galatia. We just jump in on uh, Galatians 3.26. For in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. And as many as you were baptized into Christ and have clothed yourselves with Christ, there is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. It's as radical back then as it sounds as radical today. Clearly, Christians were behaving radically different than before the resurrection of Christ. There was an entirely new social structure. Slave and slave owner, rich and poor, men and women, Jew and Gentile. Different ethnic groups were now equal and one in, in the church. Of, we think the rich and poor thing might be the most severe thing. But I'll tell you this, and if you think about it, even in our own culture, ethnic differences, race differences, are probably more difficult than actually writing checks. That is really, really tough. My, my, my word would be the Balkans. You know, the Balkans, the, the kind of joke of Europe about like, oh, great, here goes another war. And they hate the people on the other side of the hill. You know, and we sit over here in America and say, like, guy, aren't you people all the same over there? Like, I guess not. So they all hate each other. So what a weird deal. Um, so 
ethnicity then and the differences then is actually a really, really difficult thing to overcome and very, very severe. So I'm convinced that those first Christians were just as amazed at this sort of reconciliation going on among people as we would be today as we even read this 2,000 years later. Paul understood that this new family of, of Jesus followers would not look like the rest of the segregated world around them. He knew it. Because of Jesus' victory on the cross and the res- resurrection, the victory over the present powers driving fear and greed and chaos and hatred and competition and violence, all of that was changing. The church could be like heaven here on earth. It was a new agenda for how to be people. And Jesus then uh, was the, the cause of the whole thing. As Jesus asked us to pray constantly, and we'll pray it again today, today, uh, today when we do the Lord's table. Father, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray it every Sunday. Maybe you pray it every day. Paul puts it this way when speaking about the Jews and the Greeks, the righteous and the pagans. For he, speaking about Jesus, he is our peace. In his flesh, he has made both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall. That is the hostility between us, that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two, thus making peace and might reconcile both groups to God in one body through the cross, thus putting to death the hostility through it. Ephesians, that's the letter, Paul's letter to, to the Ephesians church in Ephesus. Of course, racism has been around forever. It's not an excuse, but it has been around forever. Racism was around in Jesus' day, and the, the very hostility of racism between the Jews and the Samaritans was the thing that Jesus and everybody around there was dealing with. They're just 10 miles away from each other. You see it all through the Gospels. Jesus either going through Samaria or going around Samaria. And they're talking about Samaritans, Samaritans, Samaritans. Right? So Jesus, however, is challenging this deep hatred between the Samaritans and the Jews. And so, and he does it quintessentially with this one parable that we all know, even if you're not a person of the Christian faith. You, you know this story. Heck, you could get it from Sports Center. It's what I call sports center theology here. And it's like this. Um, it's the parable of the Good Samaritan. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know the story. Uh, a religious law expert asks Jesus, Rabbi, or Jesus, what should I do to gain eternal life? What must I do to inherit eternal life? It's a standard spiritual question. Uh, he's not actually asking the way we would think that, like some sort of salvation moment. It's sort of a particular test question that you ask teachers, like, what should I do to gain salvation? What should I do to inherit eternal life? It was a, sort of a, tell me the one thing. That's kind of what it's saying. What do I need? And so, um, the, by the way, though, what you need to know is that this is the lawyer of the Old Testament Torah and all the laws, and it's actually going to be a throwdown challenge. He's testing Jesus to see if he passes a test. Okay? So, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he's trying to stump Rabbi Jesus. And Jesus replies, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your strength, and your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. The two great commandments. Right? And the lawyer asked, then asked this. It's like a setup. 
He knows Jesus is going to give the standard answer on love the Lord your God right, and then love your neighbor. And then he asks this, who is my neighbor? Oh, game on. Who's my neighbor, huh? Let's see what Jesus says. And then Jesus tells, in such cool as Jesus fashion, he tells a parable, a story. Where a man is coming from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he's beat up, and he's robbed. And a priest comes by, but he walks on the other side of the road around the beat-up man laying there and doesn't stop to help him. And then a Levite comes along. Levites are from the tribe of the uh, priest. And Levites come along. A Levite comes along, and he does the same thing. He walks on the other side of the road. He's not going to stop and help the poor beat-up man. So understand the beat-up man could very well be a Jew, one of their brothers. But then a Samaritan comes along, the hated Samaritans, Jesus is telling the parable. And he comes along and he bandages up the man, and he puts him on his beast, and he takes him to the inn, gives the innkeeper the two denarii, and says, take care of him until I come back. If there's any other expenses, you know, I'll pay for it and all that sort of thing. And then Jesus asked the lawyer, now, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robber? At this point, I would like to call an expert. I'll ring the bell. Expert, I'm calling an expert in. And here he comes. Alex Smith, everyone. Old Testament expert in Hebrew, liberal languages, Hebrew, Akkadian, Ugaritic. And he is here as our expert for this moment. Please tell us about the difference between Jews and Samaritans. I feel like I should be wearing a tweed coat and have some spectacles. Or, you could. Okay. Maybe next time. So real quick, by the time of Jesus' life, uh, the animosity between Samaritans and Jews had been raging for generations. See, both groups had a long history of political, religious, and ethnic differences that often um, erupted into violent conflict. Both groups thought that they were the one true descendants of Israel to the exclusion of the other, and both groups had their own temple where they believed Yahweh God would be worshipped alone. The Jews had their temple in the south of Jerusalem, and the Samaritans had their temple in the north at Mount Gerizim. And tensions came to a head around 128 BC when the Jewish leader and high priest, John Hyrcanus, rallied an army and invaded Samaria, destroying their, 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 raiding their capital and destroying their temple. Not surprisingly, after that, relations did not improve. And one night, around 6 or 7 AD, about the time when Jesus was a young, young boy, Samaritans got into the temple in Jerusalem and they, it was actually during Passover feast, and they scattered human remains, desecrating the temple. There's another account in, uh, by the historian Josephus, who slightly after the time of Jesus, that recounts how Samaritans massacred groups of Judean pilgrims as they traveled south on their way to the Jewish temple. So as a result, you can see that these two groups had nearly in, unreconcilable differences, and that is exactly what Jesus targets here when he asks the question, who do you think was the neighbor? See, the legal expert couldn't even bring himself to say the Samaritan. Instead, he said the one who showed mercy. And what's interesting here, I think, is that instead of Jesus just preaching to the man, he actually gets the legal expert to draw the right conclusion for him. So, there's your expert moment. 
Thank you, Mr. Expert. Alex is uh, working on uh, doing his master's work at Fuller Theological Seminary in uh, in the Old Testament, and uh, and like I barely read any Ugaritic and Akkadian, and Hebrew was not fun. So, but he loves every second of it, and he's smart on this stuff. So, we have an expert. Um, so anyway, Jesus wins the argument when he gets the the lawyer to say the one who had mercy wouldn't even say the word Samaritan. You see, everyone, the, the church ought to be this shining example of, uh, of, of race reconciliation, of all reconciliation in, on earth. It ought to be leading the way, and frankly, it has over the years uh, in better and uh, worse times. The church ought to be this gathering of people that reflects heaven, you know. It ought to be the place that looks like heaven on earth. It ought to be the family of God's children. And when the church fails to look like heaven, and when we fail to be that single most powerful force on the planet for ending racial violence and poverty and genocide and wars and all sorts of divisions, then we lose. We lose traction. When we lose focus of what our primary thing is. So you see what's at stake. This is the soul of the church. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's it. That's our charge. But unfortunately... Our own culture tells us that racism is here to stay and nobody can do anything about it because they don't have the hope of Jesus in them. That sets forth that model. And so we're left then with two churches because the church tends to fade and fall into this sort of thing and you have a segregated church. Right now this morning, we have a segregated church all over the city, all over the country. It's segregated. There's two different churches. As Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King said so famously, you know, Sunday morning is the most segregated hour of the week. So we all know the reasons why there are two separated churches. And the difference, it's really a difference. It's economic. It's between the haves and the have-nots. No white person in America, and I'm going to be talking in generalities here, but no white person in America wants to trade places with a black person. Now, I'm not just saying this out of my own. We intuitively know this. You and I know this, that, it's, there's an economic, that blacks are economically disadvantaged. A few years ago, uh, they asked young black and young white men this question was asked. How much money would it take for you to trade places to become either black or white? The young black men said they would become white for free. You didn't need to give them any money. But when they asked young white men, they said it would take at least a million dollars for me to trade places. A few years ago, uh, many, many years ago, really, I visited the state of Mississippi when I was getting out of seminary. I went to Jackson, Mississippi, and I was there on church visits, and I was staying uh, with a wealthy young business owner, and, um, and we were driving by some shanties, and frankly, I'd never been to the Deep South, and I'd never seen, like, shanties on cinder blocks and dirt and that sort of thing, uh, and we're driving by these shanties, and um, that's, that's the only thing I know to call them, and... And on the outskirts of town, we're heading back to his beautiful home. That's fine. And in my mind, it looked like nothing had changed in 200 years. I, looked like I, I felt like I was watching some sort of documentary, you know. And these little poverty-stricken African-American children just stood there and stared at us as we, as we drove by in this beautiful big SUV. And not wanting to judge too quickly, uh, you know, keep in mind I'm coming from L.A., so, you know, I'm, this is kind of a shock here going on in my mind. And not wanting to really judge or say anything, hopefully, too wrong. 
I just softly sort of said, uh, so how's the race problem down here? And he answered, we don't have a race problem as long as they stay where they are and we stay where we are. And at that moment, I just sunk in the back seat. And I thought, I thought, I think I probably think the same thing unconsciously. And I'm realizing I'm just like him. I don't want to see any race problems. I don't want to deal with it. And I don't want to be responsible for it. And I realized in that moment that I need to be responsible for it if I'm a follower of Jesus. If you were one of those children standing there in the dirt patch, what emotion would you feel as you walk, watch the, the nice big car full of white folk drive by? Jealousy? Maybe. Greed? Possibly. But more likely than not, you would feel anger. Blacks are angry because of the hypocrisy, because on one hand, whites proudly recite the creeds of this country that all people are created equal and entitled to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Uh, but they're not living a desirable life, and they're not free, and they're not able to pursue happiness. And that makes pe people bitter and angry and hopeless, yes. The answer to this is really simple and extremely hard to execute. The answer is simple, and you know it, and I know it, and here it is. Simply have some black friends. Just have some black friends. It's just that simple. Have black friends. Two sociologists studying the issue discovered uh, story after story just like this. When we asked Pat, a member of our church, why there was economic inequality between blacks and whites, they said without hesitation, they have been discriminated against. And when they asked her why she thought this, she said, because I have a black brother-in-law. And I heard some of his stories and know some of his experiences, and other family members said this too. Personal relationships change the attitude of whites towards blacks and blacks toward whites. Personal relationships is what it's all about. The attitude changes from get off your lazy butt to the system has pinned them down. See, the white default is always like, you just need more initiative. But that's not actually what goes on when the, when the statistics come out. So if we want the church to look like that first church, and then we intentionally cultivate black friends. What, what bound the early church together was Jesus Christ, a Jesus who spoke of a new community where everyone was equal, Jew, Samaritan, Greek, Rich, poor, leper, pure, on and on and on. And when they came together and they got to know each other and they understand that each other was just a human being, all the barriers fell away and Jesus made everyone the same. Relationships create reconciliation. Relationships create reconciliation. Over and over and over. Even if you have a next door neighbor... Same color skin and the whole bit. And somehow, you know, you think weird thoughts about them. If you just get to know them, you're okay. Right? Relationships create reconciliation. I wonder how many times I've heard it. You know, Dan, I don't like Christians, but you're okay. 
I am not even close to a shining example of a Christ follower. And everyone said, amen. Relationships create reconciliation. Have you ever been told that? Like, I don't like Christians, but I like you. Have you ever been told that? It's kind of a backhanded slap, you know, compliment or some sort like that. So the same thing rings true even, you know, for Father's Day on reconciliation. Because some of you have a, a, an estranged relationship with your dad. And it's strained or just something distant going on. Maybe, you know, in whatever degree, something really severe or something pretty lightweight. Maybe you've just kind of grown apart. Maybe you got political differences or something, you know. And the relationship creates reconciliation. And so maybe today, if something's strained in your Father's Day world, then maybe just simply a text message or something that says, like, Happy Father's Day, if that feels safe. If that feels safe. Maybe that's all it takes. You know, maybe just something to just begin to thaw out the relationship. Relationships create reconciliation. Get to know somebody who's different from you and just begin to put things back together. That reflects the church of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian. This is the hard work that has to get done. This is a challenge. You know, the Wilburn's Father Day is, is pretty simple. Go get some Gates ribs and go to a movie and open really awesome gifts. You know, it, it's a pretty easy deal. And I thought about it and I thought, you know why? Because it's just that we're together. That's all there is to it. You just do a little bit of life together and you hang out. I don't need no special stuff. You know, I got my Y chromosome. If I need something, I go to Home Depot and get it. You know what I mean? You can't buy me anything that I won't go out and get. So, you know what I'm saying? So, it, you know, Dad, you know what I'm talking about. So, Lori um, <laughs> the other day, so she bought me something. I forgot what it was she bought me. And, she, and I said, I already got one. She goes, ah. Oh. Took it back. So, you know, you just, that's the way dads go. So, um, a relationship with God is here because Jesus came to be with us. And spiritually speaking, we have a personal relationship with God because of Jesus Christ. At the very, very core of Jesus coming to be with us is a relationship. And the relationship creates reconciliation with all of humanity. Realize this, everyone. Christianity is the only religion or faith in the entire history of humanity, even current today. It is the only one that says you can have a relationship, a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. The only one. If you want to dig into it, Christianity, the Judeo-Christian tradition, you can attach to that God. You can't do that in any other faith, religion, or philosophy. At the very core of Christianity is a personal relationship, and that relationship creates reconciliation with God Almighty. That is an astounding, astounding feature of Christianity. So I hope today that you ponder, I hope you're challenged by this, to work on having uh, friends of other races, um, that you invest in others that are not like us, and what simple thing can you do to be reconciled with others, including even within your own family? 
Reconciliation creates relationships. And speaking of such things like that, the call to the table, to the, table the Lord's table, is actually one more moment of reconciliation. Sure, it's a symbol, it's a sign, and it says, come and be reconciled. And Jesus is offering this to his disciples that night in the upper room at the Last Supper. And he's saying, participate in me, participate in my body, participate in my sacrifice, participate with me. Let us be one together. Eat this bread, drink this cup. That's what he's asking. Amen. 